Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and and Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, we just had, we should have fucking turned out the recording like 10 minutes ago, like I told you, but we just had a pretty long conversation with a budget. But aside from that, what are you even doing, man? What's going on? As you can see from my background, I am back at my parents' place. So we just sold our condo. So the last few days we've been moving, uh, getting everything together. You know me, I'm a cheap bastard, so I didn't pay no movers. <laughs> yeah. I did it myself. I did it with Lillian. Her dad came along, my dad came along. So we got, it's a small, it's not a, huge place right so we got everything to squeeze it you didn't rent a truck we did we did we definitely rented a truck yeah we rented a truck we moved everything to my house and lillian's house it just didn't make sense to have storage so we ended up giving the new owners a couple of things or we're debating throwing it out because like to store shit like that doesn't make sense storage is what like three four hundred bucks a month in the city probably more i bet yeah. probably more. It's in the I city. man like this furniture in total is worth two grand like just yeah, fucking yeah. <laughs> just you know storing what you do so we kind of had that thought process going along it's nice to be back home eh no responsibilities you just fucking get food given to you and no mortgage bro your your house clean you have to do shit bro (laughs) yeah you know it has its pros and cons to be honest i fucking love living alone i like the downtown lifestyle like the more i think in the first few episodes we're saying like oh i'm a suburban guy i just realized i'm really not i'm uh (laughs) i just like to be where where things are happening but anyways speaking about downtown my flip is going to be done in about two to three weeks so taking longer than expected we got started on may 16th so it's been a month now a little over a month so we're expecting another three weeks we went over budget and a couple of things i got the realtor to go through there are some things some suggestions that he had that i thought about as well but it's just it's way too expensive to add something so for example they wanted a powder room in the main floor like the issue with it is is that it's narrow these downtown houses are narrow. So to yeah. add a powder room, it's so awkward in a narrow layout, right? We're talking about 16 feet. Yeah. But the house is actually like 15, 15 feet wide. And it would be tremendously expensive as well because the best place to add it is in the addition of the house, which doesn't have a basement. So to get plumbing there was going to be a pain in the ass. So there are some things that are going to be missing for the place, but I don't have an unlimited budget. So I had to make sacrifices. So we went over budget and other things. So we're adding glass railings, for example. Damn. Yeah. You're adding glass railings? That's pretty Yeah, good, it's though. not. You know what? The reason why is because it's not a huge amount of uh, linear feet where we're adding it. It's like tiny yeah. because you know how some people, when you walk up the stairs, it's a completely transparent to the living room. We have a wall there and we couldn't open the wall fully because there was a lot of electrical. And to reroute all of the electrical there, and it was a lot. It would be yeah. so expensive to take a lot of time. So we just opened it as much as we could. And we're like, all right, this part's going to be glass now. Some other parts are going to be glass. So all in, it was 2,800. That's not, not bad. bad. Yeah. Not bad. It's going to add more value than that. Or at the very least, it's going to be like somewhat of a wow factor. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 2,800 is fine, I think. I don't know, obviously, how much it is. But... Yeah, but that's my stuff in a nutshell, man. Yo, how much is Toronto running you? I'm just curious, the renovation there. Because I remember the pictures that anyone that really wants to see Austin's house can probably find his old <laughs> email. Also, yeah, you can see it on there. So all in, not including realtor fees, 
right? Because realtor fees, we don't know what it's going to be. No, no, we don't how much know is what... just the reno? How much is just the reno? Just the reno. By the time renos are done, it's going to be about 94 grand. That's not bad. For Toronto? Yeah. You're not doing rental grade. You know, like that, that I think is a key difference, right? I'm assuming you're not doing rental grade. No, 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 not. Yeah, which makes like a substantial difference. And 94 grand, it's a pretty amount of money, but it's obviously Toronto and you don't want to cheap out, right? So yeah, yeah. It is, man. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess on my end, um, what has been going on? I've, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't even talk about it here, but I've been trying this like a uh, short-term lending thing that I think you and I have talked about. You know what? I'm not going to talk about that. We're just going to leave that out. But aside from that, I've gotten into this uh, Sudbury 7plex that I got to try and close within the next month. So arranging financing for that. I don't is- like to try and close. You mean you are going no, to yeah, close? No, yeah, I got to close. I got to close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shit's not optional. But like a 50 grand deposit on and well, no, I mean, either way I would have closed it, but I just got to figure out the fucking financing on that. I've been loafing. Um, sometimes like, honestly, I'm in mortgages, but like the byproduct of it is like my own finances kind of take like a back pocket, right? Cause you've got clients. So like you can't let it down. So it is what it is. So other than that, it's just been really a focus on just going live, which I've talked about a million times. And uh, we did do like a guest, like um, basically someone I know is up there right now. So I just, basically ask them to just rip it apart for me and tell me anything that's like possibly like wrong. And they gave me a pretty exhaustive list. So I'm like, fuck, I got to delay this again. So I think we might miss out on the Canada day long weekend, which kind of sucks, but some of the stuff is not imperative, but it might result in a bad review. So kind of just have to balance it out between, okay, these are all like, some of them are nice to have. It's like, you know, some of the windows don't have a net and it's like, fuck, like bugs might come in if a guest leaves it open, but does that mean I can't go live? Like, I don't know about that, right? So we still have a photographer going in on two. Dude, I've had complaints on that. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. I have my Airbnb and people just like bitched at me for not having a net and uh, really? I had to go. And yeah, it was, it's, I imagine in Cottage, it's probably a big deal. I don't know. Again, I'm not an Airbnb. I will tell you people have complained to me about it. Wow. Yo, you can't, like some of these are like really old windows. I'm like, yeah, I can't find a fucking net for this random ass size. We're going to actually just like add a lock so that like no one can open this window. So I'm like, I don't want them to open this window. If they open this window, then fucked. All these bugs are going to come in. Got it, children. And then once they're in, it's going to be a pain in the ass to get them out. But whatever. So that's another issue that I'm dealing with. I am like kind of slowing down, I think, on the real estate side. I'm like, you know what? These two projects, the triplex, we still have to refinance one more time. The cottage, we still have to refinance one more time as well. Because the addition on the triplex is still being finished. That one's taking way too fucking long, but it is what it is. I've got the seventh place closing and just with the economy, the way it's going, man, I'm like, I don't necessarily know if I see a huge like need to buy right now. Okay. It's good. This is like, okay, this is like a complete tangent here, but I've been reading more and more and more about this entire commercial loan default risk. Right. And everyone is now publicly talking about it. I don't know, understand why it's not more at the forefront in Canada, but it's definitely at the forefront in the U S where a lot of people are talking about commercial loan default. And essentially the seven bucks that I just bought is going to be a commercial loan. I have a couple of properties that are commercial loans. Right. And so I'm worried about my exposure because I'm like, fuck, what if these guys start as defaults rise, there's no requirement for a lender to renew their existing mortgage with you. Right. They could start ordering, they could start requesting for a reappraisal and my commercial loans are all up for fucking renewal. Right. So I'm kind of nervous about that. Waiting to see it. They're up for renewal in the summer. So we'll kind of see what pans out there. But yes, I am scared. I know in the U S when they talk about, like the commercial, a lot of it is referring to office vacancy office. Yeah, yeah. and malls. But, but it, um, it'll have a trickle-down effect. Like it doesn't make sense for it to not impact residential, right? And I think our values are inflated. Like some of my like multifamily, I don't think it's what I refinance. Yeah, I agree that, I mean, cap rates are fucked for, and 
we get into that not in today's episode, but we had a guest, we have backlog of guests. We get into that with like a billion dollar private equity firm of why they don't invest in Ontario real estate. But does Desjardins do a lot of, like, for example, Desjardins, Libro, just a couple of ones in Canada or Ontario, do they lend on commercial stuff, not residential multiplexes? Mm. I mean, like, purely commercial. Mixed unit credit unions will if it's in a local area that they service. I've never gone to my friends. I've never done like industrial or like something like that for me to even know. I've never even done office, right? So I was just kind of stuck in that. Even within commercial, it's got to be mixed unit for me to really touch it. So I don't really know, to be honest, but I'd imagine they would. The credit unions, the way they work is they will, for the most part, they're very heavily invested in that area that they're located in, right? So as long as there's a credit facility within, I can't remember the radius, like every credit union is slightly different, but call it like 20, 30 kilometers of wherever your property is. They will, for the most part, at least take a look at it and if it's a good quality asset, lend on it. But I'm not sure about industrial and stuff like that. So, anyways, let's just jump into today's podcast. We have a very special guest, Darren Voros. I'm sure you guys probably know who he is. If not, he's a real estate developer who's done a couple of cool projects in the books and is taking on massive, massive development projects globally outside of Canada as well. So, he's done a huge multiplex conversion in Hyde Park in Toronto. So, for those of you guys who are familiar with that area, that's not like a suburb. That is prime Toronto real estate. So pretty cool stuff there. We also get into how we got started investing in general, not coming from a trades background, not coming from finance, not coming from really anything really real estate related, but being able to eventually find his way into the developments. And lastly, we get into Synergy Mastermind, which some of our audience is familiar with. We've had a couple of guests who have been a part of that mastermind as well. I guess Darren will get into it, but it's a high level mastermind that's very selective and who they let in. And everyone has to have some sort of accomplishment already in the real estate space. So this is going to be a super entertaining episode. One of my favorites in a while. So if you guys enjoy this podcast, make sure to share it with a friend, leave a five-star review, and let's jump right into it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Darren Voros. Darren, how's everything going? Great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. For sure. And Darren, for anyone that might not know you, I know you've done quite a bit in the investing space, but why don't you give everyone a quick background on how you got started and kind of a summary of your journey to today? Yeah. I mean, I bought my first rental property, I guess, back in 2002, almost kind of by accident. I was working over in Japan for a year. My previous life to real estate investing, I was uh, in musical theater. I worked 15 years professionally as a singer, dancer, and actor. And on the side, I kind of got into real estate. So I'd worked over in Japan. I had a little bit of money, came back, bought my first house, was planning to flip it, didn't go as planned, and then ended up putting a tenant in there. Four years later, the property had almost doubled in value and I had a good tenant experience. And I was like, hey, this real estate thing is kind of cool. And then from there, you know, just started buying properties whenever I could on the side as I was doing theater. And my model at that point was kind of like, you know, buying them and fixing them up a little bit and adding value and then refinancing them and pulling that capital and going and buying another property. And so that's kind of what got me started as a real estate investor. And since then, I've done quite a few of those kinds of projects. But, you know, more recently, I think got into development, a lot of ground up purpose built rentals here in Canada and also in Costa Rica. That's kind of been my journey to date. And part of that uh, journey a couple of years ago is I started my YouTube channel, just talking about real estate investing and trying to help other people that are starting and looking to get more information. And, and that's been a huge plus for me in, in my journey. And then 
couple of years ago, I started Synergy Mastermind, which is also a, a collaborative effort with two of my buddies out in the West Coast. And we run basically 65 to 75 members from across the country on an annual basis. And we host three live events and we do monthly, uh, weekly calls, excuse me, for the mastermind. So yeah, there's a lot going on, but uh, that's kind of like the very quick synopsis of my real estate journey to date. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, that, that's a lot to break down. So we can take it in, in, I guess, like different ways. I guess let's do chronological order. Let's sort of build the story out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I want to comment on, it's funny, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people who get into real estate have these preconceived notions that, oh, you need to be a carpenter or you need to be a numbers person to enter in. But there's a lot of successful investors that don't go down the quote unquote traditional path. So before we even get started on that, I just wanted to make that clear to the audience because you don't come from a traditional background. It doesn't mean you can't be successful in real estate investing. But let's get into your journey a little bit. When you came down from Japan, you said you had some money saved up. You bought your first property and you were doing some burrs here and there. Could you walk us through how your first couple of deals went? Because I assume... It was a completely new landscape for you. And I imagine it wasn't all roses going through the process. There had to be some headaches, hiccups, and obstacles, even at the beginning of your journey. Oh, yeah. There was like many more losses than wins, I would say, for sure. And for anybody that's getting started, I think that's the thing that I didn't do that I think people have access to now is just education. Uh, yes, there was books available. There was probably networking things that were happening. I just wasn't privy to them. I think because technology is so at the forefront of everything we do now, we have access to meetups and YouTube channels and podcasts like this. I mean, it's just the infinite amount of information that's out there is incredible. So when I first got started, I bought a, a brand new house. It was in Alberta where I grew up. I was actually living in Toronto at the time, but I was looking here. It was like a condo. That's what I had to buy. That's the only thing I could afford. And I would have been house poor at that point. All my money would have been going to living and supporting that condo. So I went back to Alberta, bought a brand new house. And really, the, one of the first challenges that came up was tradespeople just weren't showing up when they said they were going to. We were trying to finish the basement, right? Because the builder did the upstairs and we were going to do the downstairs. First person that didn't show up was the drywaller. And I was like, okay, well, we got to, we waited for a week and then we waited for another week. And I was like, this word is killing time and money here, right? So how hard can this be? And that was kind of like that first thing where, like, okay, yeah, let's get in there, let's hang some drywall. And every project that I did, from that moment forward, it was kind of like picking up a new skill. And, and what I learned was basically the material cost was probably like close to one third of the entire cost of what actually needed to be done there. So in my mind, I was like, I can screw this up three times and then I'll still be the same cost as what it would, uh, would it cost to have somebody else do it. I gained that knowledge of doing this certain thing. And you know, in that process, I pick up some tools as well, which is a big part of construction is just having the right tools. So every project that I did, I just learned a new skill. Now, when I look back on that, there's some benefits and drawbacks, right? Benefit is I know construction inside and out. I can pretty much walk on to any construction site, know where they are in the process, see things that are going well, see things that are not going well. The disadvantage to that is you can't scale when you're actually in there and doing the work, the physical work every single day. That was one of the things that I learned in the beginning was I got a tremendous amount of knowledge on the construction side of things, which I really enjoyed. And I actually liked doing that kind of work. But for sure, there was always challenges and refinances that didn't come back as high as I wanted them to. Or my very first tenant, I had to evict them. That was a challenge. And then the second tenant I had for four years. So, you know, there was all those kinds of things that happened when I first got started. 
And part of that was like, I just didn't know what I was doing really. I kind of backed into real estate. As I said, I wasn't like educating myself and then going in there and trying. It was like, I bought a property and I just tried to figure it out. You know, and I think that's what a lot of investors do for their first one. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I also think it's kind of weird, but something that we take for granted, like everyone now I think knows like, what is a burn? Like these like basic like educational concepts, like go in there, put in a basement unit, right? Like increase your rents and like stuff like that. But I think you said you started in, was it 2002 or 2004? 2002, yeah. 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 And it was an era where like this kind of stuff just wasn't publicly like available information. Even in like 2015, when I started, like I just bought a property. I just accepted that I, you know, my money was tied up there until I sold it. I just kind of eventually I sold it in 2017. I feel really stupid, right? But taking those steps, I'm sure a lot of it was networking, but how did you go about kind of building your portfolio? Because I know you said you refinanced it, right? But like, how did you go about educating yourself at that time? And I'm wondering if there's some basic concepts that people could kind of take away from it even today. It was the burst strategy. The first time I bought that first property, you know, I had, had increased the value of it because I'd basically doubled the square footage by finishing the basement. And I went back to my mortgage broker at, at some point, I think soon after that and said, you know, I've got this one property. And he was like, oh, well, you know, you can do a, a refinance on it because you've added value. And that, that was a, like a whole new thing to me, like that whole thing of like, what do you mean? You know, like he, I had to get him to explain it to me. He's like, well, you've increased the value so you can increase the loan. And then you get that check back from the bank because you've done this sweat equity essentially. So that was a big learning for me. But after that, you know, it was really just kind of employing that same strategy. And I was just like scraping and scratching things together as best I could. Right. Like I was getting my parents to help me co-sign here and there. I was like self-employed. So I wasn't great on paper and the mortgage rules were a little bit different than like full transparency. It's not the same as it is now. But that's not necessarily an excuse because I hear people saying that, like, well, the prices were crazy now, so I can't get into the real estate market. I'm like, well, in when I got started, I thought they were crazy too in comparison to what I was making, right? So, you know, I think you just have to be a little bit more creative in that situation. But I just wasn't going to let that sort of like hold me back from keeping buying real estate at that point. I was like, what do I have to do to make this happen? And just kind of like figuring out those, not necessarily like loopholes per se, but how can I get these projects financed? How can I buy them? How can I renovate them? How can I refinance them, pull my capital and move on to the next one? So that was a lot of what I did for like the first decade. It was just like, how do I make this happen? And, and what do I need to do? And just kind of like, like I say, scraping together. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing stories where at least for the first few years, everyone thinks that you can get to your point, like just overnight or in a year or two, like people set goals way too aggressively. And it's not realistic, right? For the first few years, you're mastering construction. And yes, it has its pros and cons, but for you to get into development and not know much about construction, that would be a recipe for disaster, right? So you honed your skill set, you gained the confidence for you to eventually enter that space. We're going to get into that shortly. But one of the interesting points that you said is, is that you're going to be house poor in Toronto, right? And in today, that's everyone's like, not much has changed from the situation of what you laid out before and today. People opt to be house poor in Toronto versus investing in another province. And yes, even if you're priced out of Alberta, there are other provinces. You can go to the state, right? You just kind of have to think outside the box. Real estate investing isn't going to get easier over time, especially with like all of the political environment. It's going to get harder over time. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, is that if you're sitting down thinking like, oh, like I'm going to wait five years, prices is going to be down. Something else is going to come up, making it harder to get into the market. So you just have to be creative today. But I want to get into the development space because I know that's your sort of your bread and butter and what you're most known for. 
So you've done all of these projects for a few years. How did you get into the development space? Like, what was the decision that made you go like, I want to do this? And let's kind of walk through an example with one of the first projects that you've had. You know, one of the biggest projects I had done to date before getting into development, and I guess this is considered development, was just on a smaller scale, was I bought up the house actually that I'm living in now. And we tore it down and I built a brand new triplex on it and then added a laneway suite, which is where I'm sitting right now. But that process of going through that was really that first sort of development idea, whereas the other ones were just renovations and taking a single family dwelling and converting them to a legal duplex or triplex. But really, the shift happened after that project, because that was similar to what I was doing up to that point. The shift happened when I started looking at bigger properties that were more money. I almost did it by accident again. I met someone in Costa Rica when I was there, and they were like, oh, my husband's a realtor. You should connect with him when you get back to Toronto. I did that. And he called me with an exclusive listing. And the price point was like north of two and a half million. And I was like, I'm not even going to go look at this property because I can't afford it. It doesn't make sense. He's like, ah, just come take a look. It was right around the corner from where I live. So I'm like, okay, it's in High Park, beautiful area of Toronto, expensive real estate, beautiful houses. And I was like, yeah, it'd be nice to own something like this, but it's never going to happen. But once I got on site, I started walking the property and a couple of things stuck out to me. One, it was a big lot, 42 by 200, which is not common in Toronto, right? So I'm like, okay, now I know, I know a little bit about the zoning bylaw. I know a little bit about like density and how many uh, square feet we can put on this lot. And then I started doing the math in my head. I'm like, hey, we can actually build maybe like something like 6,000, 7,000 square feet without actually having to go for a minor variance, which is like a whole process of going to the city and asking for permission to do something a little out of the norm on the zoning bylaw. And then I started breaking it down. I'm like, well, seven, 7,000 square feet, you divide that out by eight units. That's like, you know, 650 to 700 square feet per unit. We could do two on each floor. We could go full three stories. And now I've got an eight unit apartment building. And then I started like, oh, maybe, maybe we've got something here. Like maybe this actually is a viable project, you know? And so I started to think that it was actually something that might work. And so then I started digging into it a little bit more. I'm like, I talked to a couple of architects, I talked to the city, I talked to everyone I could get connected with, contractors, all that stuff. And what I realized was this was actually a viable project that could make sense. And the other thing that I realized while I was going through this is I was like, you know, who's not looking at this property right, right now? All the investors and all the first time home buyers, because it's out of their price range, right? So even just that next step up from let's call it a million dollars in Toronto to two or two and a half million dollars, you're going to eliminate 60 to 70% of the buyers on the market. And you're not competing with everybody else. And you're in this great neighborhood, really established, close to transit, big lot, beautiful homes, right? So I was like, there's a lot of pluses to this transaction. Now, I basically bought that property. And the other nice thing that they did for me or the thing that I asked for, which I was not used to at all, was long conditional time. I said, hey, can I think about this for a while? Can I put it under contract? And can I like have some due diligence time? And before I was almost about to say, like, give me two weeks, the agent suggested 30 days. And I was like, what? Like I had never, ever had more than five days to make a decision on a Toronto property. When he said 30, I was like, 30 days, this is amazing, right? So not only was I not competing with all these other people that were on the market, but I got long conditional time to actually make a decision that made sense. And in that 30 days, I was able to talk to the city. I was able to talk to architects. I was able to talk to contractors. 
I was able to go out and start raising capital for this deal, right? Before I'd even removed my conditions. So that was that first one. I was like, this might be the way to move forward as a potential developer in the city of Toronto is this like kind of missing middle, we call it. Instead of being a big condo developer and instead of doing duplex and triplex conversions, maybe this eight to 10 unit model is the one that might actually make sense. So $2.5 million, it, when was this? Was this like a couple of years ago or recently? This is like right in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> okay, that's pretty recent. That's October of 20, well, it was summer of 2020. Yeah, so $2.5 million. And was it like barren land or was there a house on it? Or what were we looking at here? No, big, beautiful brick house on oh. there. It was a really nice looking property from the front. Inside was a dog's breakfast. It had been chopped up into seven units, illegal units. Nothing was legal in there. There was three units in the basement. It was still had some of its original charm, but I was like, this whole thing's a gut. Like it's nothing is legal here. So we're going to have to take it back to the studs and start over. So at this point, you'd already done, it sounded like a bunch of um, single family duplex conversions, which I'm assuming were kind of in the city. Mm -hmm. Were you already raising capital when you looked at this property? A, how did you identify the opportunity? B, how did you go about actually taking that down? Because $2.5 million, we're talking at least like 600 grand down payment, 700, something like that, right? Not an insignificant amount of money. And then the build and stuff like that, right? So how did you like approach this project? The 30-day conditional period helps, um, but it's you know a significant amount of capital to raise in a decently short amount of time, right? So just wondering how you took it down. Just before that, in March of that year, I launched my YouTube channel. And prior to that, I had been a speaker with an organization where I was kind of traveling all over the country and meeting a bunch of real estate investors. So prior to that, I'd only ever done joint venture partnerships, me and one other person, right? Me and my friend Jeff, me and my friend Paul, me and my parents, joint venturing on a partner, on a property. This one was the first time I was like, I'm going to need to raise capital. I'm going to need to go out and pool some money together because this is something that I can't do on my own. So I went actually to, you know, which is normally where people start raising capital, which is like friends and family, right? Okay. I've got this opportunity. Is anybody interested? I had some folks that were interested in potentially partnering on it. And we'd had conversations in the past about other projects that didn't actually end up going through. So that was the first pool of people that I kind of went to. And in terms of getting in their contract, all that stuff, that was pretty straightforward but being able to look at the financing of this property, I was like, we want to do something a little more creative. And what we were able to do was we were actually able to get residential financing on it because it was a residential property technically, right? So I was like, low interest financing on this thing on the purchase will give us the ability to then go in and renovate it. And then on the back end, because we're going to be an eight unit apartment building, well, then we get to switch over to commercial financing, right? So that really helped as well. And so those business partners, those capital partners actually were qualifying partners for the mortgage as well. So it wasn't just raising capital. It was also like, who's going to sit and guarantee the loan? Because it's usually not me because the banks look at my portfolio and they're like, great, your net worth is fantastic, but your debt coverage ratio sucks, right? Yeah. So they're basically like, you're not even close to being able to qualify this. So I went and found partners that were not only going to bring capital to the table, but they were able to bring qualifying power to the table so that we were able to get residential financing on the front end, which really helped us with low interest money until the interest rates went, went crazy. And then, you know, we were kind of back to those current interest rates where we are right now. So you guys renovated the main structure, added some units, and then you built onto the main existing structure, or did you fully tear it down and 
fully rebuild it. You know, it would have been probably be easier to have just torn it down because we literally went back to square one. We underpinned the basement. We did an extension to the foundation. We put in all new floor assemblies. Basically, the only thing that stayed in that building was the front three walls and everything else. We did a full brand new third story on the building. So it was basically, a, it's a brand new build, all new plumbing, all new electrical, all new everything, right? So it's a beautiful brick shell over top of a brand new building. I'm curious in terms of quoting the construction of a project like that, because there's so many moving pieces. Like, are you just going with, hey, it's going to cost me $250 a square feet? Is it like rough math or do you actually have it broken down? Like, here's the electrical, here's the flooring, here's the plumbing, and then... Like, did you have a certain plan and just sticked with that? Or did things have to change? And if things do change while you start constructing, how are you underwriting for that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think one of the investors was a plumber who I've worked with in the past. And he actually was going to be the construction manager of the project. He really wanted to learn how to do a project of this size and scope. So him and I worked together. We came up with the budget based on my experience with the build that I had just completed, the three unit build, right? So it's like, you know, you break down the cost per square foot of drywall and, and plumbing and electrical and all that kind of stuff. And then you just multiply it for this eight unit building. And we came up with a number, right? Now, here's what we didn't factor in. We didn't factor in the pandemic, the price of lumber going to four times what it used to be, the supply chain issues, the shortage of labor, the sites getting shut down for months at a time, like none of that got factored in, right? It was just, we'd never experienced anything like it. So we were underwriting to the best of our ability at that time, but we underestimated for sure what it was going to take to complete it. And we underestimated the cost of what it was going to take to complete it as well. Now, the good thing that happened during that time, as you guys probably both know, is that rents went crazy as well, right? So our revenue model, because it's fixed off of the revenue of the building and the evaluation of the building is based off the revenue, not only did we spend more, but the building was worth more in the end as well. So those two things kind of balanced out. But in terms of some challenges, like we had to go to committee of adjustments on the building, you know, and so that took a little bit longer than we wanted to. We were actually right. We, we got pushed through committee, no problem. Our neighbors had some issues, but we were able to get an approval. But it did. It delayed us a couple months here and there, like I say, with everything that was going on. So I think we had budgeted a year for the construction and about 1.5 million on construction. I think we ended up at 2 mil. And I think our timeline stretched to like close to 20 months, almost double like what we had originally estimated. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. that was a bit of a challenge for sure. Mm -hmm. And you added an extra story. Mm -hmm. Who's to say why not turn it to 10 unit? or a 12 because now the incremental cost per unit is probably not going to be as significant if you're demoing a significant amount and and adding another story anyways. Why stop at eight units? Yeah, there was a little bit of a nuance with this building. And that was that there's something called the Toronto rental housing. Like you have to uh, basically apply for a permit to remove or to change any existing rental buildings. Now, the rub on this one that I was pretty upset about is like, there's seven illegal apartments in this building, right? No one's ever applied for a permit on them. No one's ever paid development charges on them. But when we went to apply for our permit to make it a legal eight unit building, they were like, well, there was seven units in there before you have to replace those seven rental units, put them back on the market. That's part of Toronto rental housing's mandate. 
I said, they're not legal. It doesn't matter. Right. And they're like, doesn't matter whether it's legal or not. You still have to replace those seven units. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So then I said, okay, perfect. So I'm assuming then that because you're going to count these seven existing units that we don't have to pay development charges on them. Right. Which is like $50,000 a unit. They're like, no, no, no. You still have to pay development charges because no one ever paid those development charges. So I'm like, we get screwed by Toronto rental housing because they're like, you have to replace those units. And then we also still have to pay development charges. So that was a really frustrating process. So basically that's why we couldn't really go beyond like the eight. We had to actually be really careful about how many of the units we changed. We only changed technically five units or less, because if you change five units or more, you have to go to Toronto (laughs) council for approval. If you change five units or less, you just basically get to go through the planning department and they'll approve your application. So I found this to be fascinating. I don't want to get into a political conversation about, you know, what's wrong with our system, but I'm like, here's what we're as developers trying to add legal, safe rental units to the market, take off illegal units and actually make them nice and new and everything. And all they're doing at every step of the way is causing problems, adding money and charging us fees, right? So it was a very frustrating process to go through, which is why I don't buy anything that's an existing rental property now. I'm always looking for like a single family dwelling or something where it's like, okay, I can take this property down and build up a new one and never have to deal with any of that stuff ever again. Before we, because we really want to know what the final numbers were, I'm sure they were pretty juicy, but part of that is as well as, you know, for anyone looking to get into development, like you guys started at, I think you said 1.4 mil and you ended up at 2 mil somewhere around that ballpark. That's a decent amount of like overage, right? So how do you go about being well prepared for that? Did you just like over raise when you're raising capital? Like, hey guys, like we're targeting to raise like, you know, about $2 million, but we're trying to keep the construction under 1.4 or do you just make sure the partners that you're bringing in have the ability to go above and beyond on the capital that they're bringing, right? Like it's a big question mark. Like we could raise a project today and intend to build four units and then Hey, highest and best use is actually now like 20 units. And like, you know, where do we kind of go from here? Right. How do you kind of handle those challenges? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think like one of the things that I've learned along the way is I raise enough capital and I tell my partners this for sure. It's like, okay, let's get the project completed. If we need a capital injection throughout, let's borrow that money along the way, as opposed to bring it in in equity until the project is complete. And then we know exactly where we're going to end up with our takeout financing. And we're going to know exactly the bill on the renovation and everything like that. And then we can bring in additional partners if we need to at that point. That's what we do. And that's what we're doing right now. So basically, had my original investors, they were well aware of the fact that, you know, once this is done, we're going to know exactly where we sit and then we're going to bring in some additional capital. They're going to be part of the development phase. So they're going to be the original investors as part of the project. And then the investors that we bring in at this point now, their investment's pretty straightforward, right? It's like, now we're into like a turnkey buy and hold rental for the next five to 10 years, whatever we want to do. So that's a very different risk profile for the people coming in now versus what the people that came in on the original development deal, but they're going to purchase shares in this case in our corporation at a different rate than what the original people brought in. But it's still a fantastic return for them because they're basically now into a multi-unit building in Toronto and they're just going to sit there and watch their capital grow over the next few years. But the original investors were definitely aware of the fact we were going to inject additional capital later on into the transaction. Gotcha. Okay. And then once everything was done, I don't know if you're able to share this, but what do the numbers kind of look like in Toronto for an eight unit? 
Yeah. So the great thing about this, as we were going through it too, is the financing changed a little bit. So CMHC introduced what's called MLI Select. It's a brand new program that basically is incentivizing developers to bring new rental units to the market. So that program was introduced halfway through this project. What that does is the new rules is basically like if you can get it a CMHC insured on your commercial building, it's basically going to allow you to go up to 50 years amortization on your loan. You get uh, fantastic rates on your mortgages. You basically have the ability to have a non-recourse loan, which is very rare in Canada, basically meaning like if something happens that nobody has to sit and guarantee the loan, it's just going to be the asset that is guaranteed. So one of the things that we got really lucky with was that program kind of got introduced and we were able to get into that program basically on the takeout financing. So where we ended up was the building ended up being evaluated just north of $6 million. We ended up with a, I think it's 3.6 or $3.7 million mortgage. So we were almost able to take out obviously our construction capital and majority of our original, almost all of our loan on the original purchase leaving basically the investor capital and the new capital we're going to bring into the deal. So that's just sitting there in equity. And then that uh, property will continue, like I say, to operate. So we got a 3.93% interest mortgage on a 10-year term. That's fixed. And we got a 40-year amortization because of our debt coverage ratios. So yeah, now we're basically into operation and we'll just continue to operate that building for the long term. And it's uh, one of many in the portfolio now that we have of these kind of boutique apartment buildings in the city of Toronto. So we want to hear about the many. So we heard about the one, we want to hear about the rest. But before we get into that, so the MLI select program, it's a 10 year term, right? It can be five or 10 year. Yeah. Okay. So you've chosen a 10 year term. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about 10 years from now, rate environment uncertain? Because obviously we're coming off a very, very low rate environment. And that's going to impact your debt service. And that could potentially lead to more equity injections if the ratios don't necessarily work out. Is that something that you keep in the back of your head? And how do you adjust for that risk? Or is it not really a risk? I think looking 10 years out with what rents have done over the last decade, our costs are essentially fixed for the next 10 years on the mortgage. I mean, property taxes are going to go up, utilities are going to go up, but it's not going to be at the same rate that the rentals go up. That gap just continues to widen. And I think that if we're in a position at the end of the 10 years where we couldn't necessarily, let's say the first option would be like, obviously get a new loan for the higher amount and exit everyone's capital and continue to hold the building. So we'd have no money left in it and then just continue to ride off into the sunset with this building that has no money into it. And it's essentially an infinite return. If that wasn't the case, we would just sell it and exit, you know, and let somebody else take it over. But, you know, the other thing that we have that happens on that building after 10 years is we had a mandate with those Toronto rental housing units that I was telling you about. We had to replace those units. That affordability element runs out after 10 years. So after 10 years, we can now go to market rent on all of Mm. our units. So right now we have two units that we have to keep in the affordable housing space. So that's a factor too. Like even though the mortgage comes up for renewal at the end of those 10 years, and it could be at a different mortgage rate, you're now outside of the affordable housing mandate that we have, which now you can go to market rent, which is going to be a significant jump in revenue. And I guess for the affordable housing, like those units are going to be tiny, tiny studio sort of things, right? Like it doesn't necessarily say whether it needs to be a three bedroom or two bedroom, it could take up a smaller square footage. 
Yes, that is correct. We ours are not in this building. We had actually designed already before we had kind of got figured out we had to do affordable housing. But we have two bedroom units, two bedroom, one bathroom units. I mean, this is something that I really am passionate about. I've become passionate about it. On the flip side, I was kind of forced into it, but I think it's actually a really great thing is putting some sort of affordable units in your buildings. But with MLI Select, that is one of the challenges of it is they don't regulate what size units you have to deem affordable, right? So I don't know if it's the perfect system because basically like you're capped with a rental amount saying $1,348 a month is what you can charge in the city of Toronto right now based on their rates. So of course, what are you going to do as a developer? You're going to create the smallest possible unit that you can and deem it affordable so that you're as close to market rent as possible. I think if the system evolves and changes, there should be an affordable rent category for each kind of unit. It should be, here's the affordable for bachelors, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, so that the developers are incentivized to put some large units on the market. Because I think in my experience, most of our affordable tenants need at least kind of a two bedroom, three bedroom situation, right? Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we wanted to move on to some like other development projects you're working on. But I have one more question before we even get into that. Like I just have a bunch of things popping in my head. Sort of the unit size structure. So you're saying two beds, one bath. Is that sort of the sweet spot for you? Because I would imagine when you start entering three beds, you have like four lifers, which is not necessarily what you want. You want like turnaround natural attrition. And generally people with one beds and two beds is the people who will stay there for three, four years and then move out to a bigger place. Is that sort of the logic that you have? Yeah. On our newer buildings, we have uh, quite a mix. Like most of what we do is two bedroom units, I would say. But now in our new builds, we're splitting the basement basically into four units. So those become like four bachelor units, 375 to 400 square feet. So that gives us a nice mix in the basement. We will deem usually one or two of those units affordable. And then on the main floor, second floor, third floor, if we do two units per floor, we get those two bed, often two bath units, which are great for revenue and great for tenant profile. And that gives us our 10 unit buildings. And if you're 10 units or under right now in Ontario, you don't have to go through site plan approval through Bill 23 that was just passed, which is a huge benefit. And you combine that with MLI select financing through CMHC. And all of a sudden, these missing middle, these boutique apartment buildings become something that are a very interesting sector, niche sort of sector to get into as a developer. That was a perfect transition to Bill 23. So let's just quickly talk about that. Do you feel like with the introduction of Bill 23, that it's going to increase the competition in this missing middle that you're talking about? It's a great name for it. And especially as you're starting, it's kind of, we didn't even get to you scaling up your portfolio into multiple developments, but you know, for people that are kind of looking at Bill 23 and going, okay, if I, if my understanding is correct, you can now go to a fourplex basically on any lot anywhere in Toronto within reason, I think. But what are the hurdles then now? If so, if I'm looking at like a Scarborough bungalow, which are these like 1970s era, like built properties, is the main hurdle still just going to be capital? Like you still need to be able to raise the capital and fund the construction, right? Is that the main hurdle? Is there now just going to be a lot of competition? Are people just like, what do you kind of see changing from here? Yeah. I mean, there's always competition in Toronto. I think that's not going to change all that much. I think this is something that I teach. I mean, this is why I teach development now exclusively because I think so many people are like, hey, this is a new thing. I want to get into it. Like, how do I do it? There are so many nuances to this that if you have the right, obviously, structure moving forward, it's so much easier. 
But that aside, I think that, you know, when you're looking at these, I think there is going to be a little bit more competition in this space. But the cream, obviously, as real estate investors always rises to the top, the people that can do it well and the people that kind of scale it, they're going to be profitable. But I think the number one challenge is still capital. But the second challenge is still that you're still going to have to go through a minor variance for almost every single project in the city of Toronto, regardless of whether you're going for a triplex or a fourplex or an aplex or a tenplex. There's still that element of you need to go for a minor variance application, which is never a guarantee. Right. I mean, knock on wood, I've had a hundred percent success rate through committee of adjustments. I've every project I've ever tried to go has been approved, but it's because we don't go for these crazy asks. Right. But there's a lot of things that are being eliminated. So for the fourplexes in Toronto, to your point, now there's no parking requirements. That's a huge thing. Right. It used to be that you had to have four car parking for a four unit building. Right. Mm. So that's not a Bill 23 thing. That's just a city of Toronto mandate that just recently changed, right? So, but in conjunction with Bill 23, that is a bit of a game changer. So I think that more people need to be looking at it. I think more people need to be getting into this situation in this sector because it's now a profitable venture to get into four unit buildings in the city of Toronto. The reason why people avoided Toronto before is because it didn't cash flow, right? Duplex, even triplexes sometimes, they don't work. Right. But if you can pick up something in that, like you say, the bungalow in Scarborough, add at least two more stories above it, maybe even a laneway suite in the back. Now you've got five units on a property. That property is going to make sense. Right. Depending on your cost of construction, which is the X factor. But that's a pretty easy exercise to just get a, a solid number together before you get started. And I realize you probably should have asked this first, but just for anyone that doesn't know, are you able to quickly summarize what Bill 23 is and what really changed and what the legislation was or the rules? The easiest way to think about it is the Bill 23 was built to incentivize more rental units coming on the market, right? And faster, right? That's the biggest thing. So I would say the major changes are that you mentioned it. Every municipality has a mandate now to basically take any single family lot and make it legal for at least a triplex, right? Now, when municipalities implement that is going to change, like depending on the municipality, but they have a belief it's a year to implement the policy to make every single family lot now at least a triplex. That's going to change the landscape of Ontario for sure. The other thing is that anything under 10 units now doesn't have to go through site plan approval. If you've never been through site plan approval, it's an annoying process. It's awful. It sucks. It costs time. It costs money. And for smaller buildings, like 10 units or less, it's really an unnecessary process. So kudos to them for saying anything under 10 units doesn't need to go through site plan approval. That's going to save you at least 12 months of time. In my experience, at least $200,000 to $300,000 on your development. And then the other ones, they're reducing development charges for purpose-built rentals. And they're actually exempting development charges for affordable units deemed affordable, right? So those are all huge things that are basically just incentivizing people to go out there and build more rental stock so that we can help solve this housing crisis that we have. Is it going to be the thing that solves the entire problem? No, but at least it's a good start. And it's a good thing for anybody that's an investor they should be looking at it as an opportunity to go in and potentially find properties that may not have worked in the past that may work now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the nimbyism. Oh, gosh. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to see multi that pop up and forth. No. Yeah, that'll never end. <laughs> no, but like still the numbers won't work out in those like ultra fluent neighborhoods, you know, like no one's going to go to Rosedale and just like build a fourplex there. <laughs> Let's get into some of the other projects that you're working on. So now you're how many development projects are you working on concurrently at the moment? It was a couple, right? Yeah, so we have uh we just finished uh Dover Court and Oak Mount, which are two eight unit conversions. Those were renovations. We took an existing building and basically they're brand new builds, but uh, yeah, those were kind of a renovation. We've got two uh, more in that space. We are halfway through construction on our Dufferin project. That's another eight unit building. We're just about to break ground on our Glen Lake project, which is a 10 unit building. That's the one I was talking about, the four units in the basement. And then we're just about to start construction on a 31 unit building out in Kitchener. And then I've got a project in Costa Rica that we're going to break ground on in the fall. That's a six house condo development. And then we have a 205 unit subdivision out in uh, Hastings, Ontario, that we're waiting on draft plan approval for that one to, uh, to move that one forward. So that's what we have in the pipeline right now. For those people that are getting started as developers, I would not recommend taking on six projects at the same time, unless you have a massive staff of people. It's a lot. So we're busy right now, to say the least. That's pretty crazy. I was going to be like, is that it? Like, is that all you have to do? <laughs> but, but you can't be like joke around about that. That was the crazy amount of volume that you're handling there. I just want to quickly talk about, because I think you said that you're doing, you have ground up developments. And then obviously you have these kind of call like a build and extend type model. I don't really know what to call it. Right. And then you also, the apex that you're doing like a cosmetic, not cosmetic, but I think you said it was an existing apex that you're renovating as well. Right. Is that, was that right? No, everything we had was uh, the only one that was like an existing rental before was that Oakmont project that I kind of just talked you guys through. Everything uh, else was basically a single family dwelling or whatever that we we got it out like entirely started almost from scratch. And then all the other all of our new projects are like tear down and rebuild. Those are ground up developments. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy because your first development project that you started was in 2020. Right. Well, I guess excluding your primary residence. Yeah. Right. This is essentially a two and a half year journey. Um, yeah, two and a half years. And you now have six development projects on the go and you've probably done your first exit maybe a year ago or so, right? If yep. it was a 20 month project. Yep. How did you scale at the rate that you scaled? And I'd also like for you to kind of talk about synergy as well here. It's just like, what is the role of, of that group? And is it more on development and so on? Yeah, no, a scaling part was uh, something that I think happened on a couple fronts. One with the thought leadership platform and kudos to you guys for having a podcast. I think it's an amazing thing to have people obviously know what you do. They kind of reach out to you. It's, it's, you know, my YouTube channel was that thing, right? So that changed the capital raising game a little bit for me. People started to know who I am, know what I'm doing. And that really helped with capital raising. So that allowed me to scale a little bit. Then the next thing is hiring and staffing, right? Like for me, I've always been the person that's like, I do everything. I get in there. I'm like, like literally I was the guy building the house before. Right. So I had to step back from that and I had to hire. My first hire was an executive assistant. The next hire was an operations manager. Now I've got a finance person and we just keep building out the team, right? The more that we do, the more that we have to build and scale the employees in the company. So that was the second part of it, right? But you've got to have the revenue to support that as well. So the next thing that I learned about, and this was part of being a part of Synergy, was somebody came in and presented on like they were doing a development project. And I learned about acquisition fees and project management fees and all these other things. And I was like, wait a minute, like, hold on. 
we get to charge like a fee for the development to just manage it. And that was a huge game changer for me. And that was something where I was like, hey, now I can actually collect, let's say, five to $10,000 a month on this development project where I can now have a staff that manages it because there's enough meat on the bone in the development project that it makes sense. And every other developer is absolutely doing this, right? So it made sense to do those things. And that's what really allowed me to start to scale was having the ability to make money along the way. Because previously I was like, I'm deferring all of my money till the end yeah. of the project, right? Or five years from now or whatever, like I'm a half owner of cash flow. Great. I'll take my 250 bucks and like every month and hire somebody. No, it's not going to happen, right? So having those development fees and having all those things as part of the transactional costs, now it allows you to build and scale, right? And so that's what was really a big game changer. And so to transition to Synergy, you know, Synergy was just something that we created because we wanted to be around other investors that were operating at a little bit different level and operating at a high level, whether that's through development or raising capital or buying multifamily buildings or doing some of these things on a larger scale just being around a bunch of other people that are trying to scale their business at the same time. That's really what synergy is all about. It's like getting in a room with a bunch of other people. They're like struggling with the same things that you are and saying, how did you get through this? What resources were you able to find? And then we bring in expert speakers that just really help us get to that next level because they're like usually running multi-million dollar companies. And they were where we were at couple of years ago or five years ago. And they're just like, Hey, do these couple little steps and see where that takes you. And that's really what synergy is about. Awesome. Yeah. I know, uh, recently or a few months ago, you guys had Brandon Turner yeah. from bigger pocket or was formerly from bigger pockets, uh, jump on. So I could only imagine the caliber of guests that you have speaking at your events. So Darren, I think that was a great episode. I think, you know, there's a lot of nuggets there. So usually we ask our guests these two questions at the end of the podcast. So the first question is, where do you see your business going over the next three to five years? I think I'm in growth mode, obviously. You know, that's for me, I think we're just getting started. I think that I feel like the, these last couple of years have been a huge learning curve for me. And I was talking to my employees about this the other day. I'm like, I feel like we've got this stable foundation now, right? We've made our mistakes. Uh, we've made a lot of them over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Just purely like we didn't know this is a new space for us. Now that I know some of those things, I really feel like we're in growth mode. So I'd like to have a hundred of these eight to 10 unit buildings in Toronto. I think that we can scale this business pretty quickly, but I also want to do some bigger transactions. I want to do some big developments. I want to do hundred plus units, but I also like the idea of continuing to grow my international portfolio. I love traveling. I spend four months of the year in Costa Rica and I'd love to expand that. I think Canadians want to invest in foreign countries where they want to vacation, right? So it's like, I want to build in, in Costa Rica. I want to build in Portugal. I want to build in Bali. I want to build in all these places. And it's like, and I want to use Canadian funds to do that so that people can invest in that asset, but they can also use it if they want to and go to vacation in these amazing places. So that's what's on the horizon. Perfect. The second question, sorry, I'm going to make this specific to development. So someone looking to get into development today in Toronto what is the biggest risk or mistake that you kind of see people doing? The biggest risk is that people don't know what it costs to do development projects because what they do is they take their existing experience and they try to say, I'm just going to take this and I'm going to apply it to this bigger transaction. There's going to be things that come up that you had no idea were even part of the process. And that's where I see a lot of developers make a huge amount of mistakes or first time developers, if you will. 
So there's development, I think, and I say this a lot, it is to me the most profitable section of being a real estate investor of anything else that you can do as a real estate investor but it's also the place where you can lose the most amount of money. I've seen developers, obviously you guys have probably heard the stories too. Development companies go bankrupt all the time, right? Because they just don't have the right resources and they don't plan and they don't know what they're doing. So I think that people hear me speak and they're like, oh, this sounds so easy. I'm just going to go do a 10 unit building in Toronto, right? Because the experience that I've just talked about, but there's a lot of nuances to it. If you're going to do it, get educated on it because it's really something that even if you have to pay tens, $20,000 for education, right? You're going to make that back on your first transaction by not making those catastrophic mistakes. Yeah. I can only imagine one mistake in development is going to cost you more than 10 grand. <laughs> I've made probably like 20 mistakes that have cost me mm-hmm. triple of that. You know, it's, it's very expensive when things go wrong for sure. So yeah, that is the biggest situation that usually comes up with development. So we usually have the two final questions that Mayu asked, but I want to ask one more question. For someone looking to get into development, so we talked about the biggest risk, what is some advice that you have for them? I'm not a person that's going to tell you to start small. I don't think you need to. I think you just need to take your time with development. And I think you really need to be good at due diligence and underwriting. And if you're not good at it, hire somebody else to do it who is really good at it. Most people don't work with cost consultants. They don't work with construction managers. They don't work with any of these people because they don't need them in their projects. If you're going to get into development, hire those people to do what they do best to really solidify your numbers and see if this project's going to make sense for you. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's going to cost you $10,000, $15,000 sometimes just to do diligence on a project. But guess what? is a lot better than a million. That's how quickly it can change, right? So you get into a project and all of a sudden it's like, this is not a good situation. So make sure you're hiring the people that you need to hire to do what they do best. And then you'll at least know if the project is going to make sense to move forward on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really good advice, especially since I'm sure, you know, and I've been guilty of it as well. A lot of real estate investors are cheap. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they're used to to spending 400 bucks on a home inspection and that's their cost, right? So I'm like, no, development doesn't work that way. uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Darren, really appreciate you jumping on your wealth of knowledge. I'm sure we only scratched the surface because I still have some questions in my head. Sure, Maya still has some questions. So I'm sure sooner (laughs) down the line, we'll have you back on, especially with all of the projects that you have going on. If people want to connect with you, I'm not sure if you're still accepting investors or if you're still accepting people to the Synergy Mastermind. How could they best find information on all of this? Yeah, I'll just give you the quick rundown. First and foremost, my website, darrenvoros.com. I am still accepting investors on a couple of our projects. Second one is check out my YouTube channel. It's Darren Voros also. And then synergymastermind.ca. We are basically ending year three of Synergy. We're now accepting applications for year four. It's an annual program. So we have a very low attrition rate with Synergy. We only have about 10 to 15 spots that open up each year, but we are Mm -hmm. accepting applications for year four, which will start in October, which I'm super excited about. Awesome. So all of those links will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit us with a five-star rating because that helps bring great guests like Darren out to the podcast. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.